All right, here we go. Rants with Justin and Joe. Joe. 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 All right, everybody, welcome to Rants with Justin and Joe. This is our ninth episode, and we are looking very forward uh, to our special guest, uh, Shala Ali, Dr. Shala Ali. Um, but before we go, I would like to just go over some of the logistics, as always. I will be giving uh, code words or keywords, one at the beginning, one at the end. You need to email me at jbl.par at AOL.com, uh, the opening keyword and the closing keyword if you're wanting to get your CEUs and this will be uh, one CEU for the BACB. Also, so you know, if you want, and Joe, I think put that in the chat box. Also, so you know, uh, you can ask questions anytime uh, that you would like. You can do that. We prefer through the Q&A section, but you can also do it uh, through the chat section and Joe and I monitor that constantly throughout. And just remember, most of this uh, talk today will be driven by your guys' questions. So if you have a question out there, get them in early because what we've seen is we get a lot of questions and then sometimes uh, we don't get to them all because of so many questions. So get them in. So with that, I will uh, go and give us our opening keyword and then I will give us the closing keyword a little later. Our opening keyword is social, social, S-O-C-I-A-L. I think I spelled that right, uh, social. And so that's the keyword you're gonna need at the beginning. Now, with that, I'm pleased to uh, introduce our first guest, or not our first guest, our guest for today, Shala. Uh, and I was thinking about it, and I will let Joe give more of the introduction, but the first time I met Shala was something like this. Uh, or at least how we got rants going, is thinking at a bar talk, just sitting down and what we talk about ABA. And Shala and I were not exactly at a bar. We were at a table off of a bar in Atlanta at ABAI with uh, Shala, myself, and Tanya Bainham, who was a former UNT student. And I just remember talking a lot about the future of the field with Shala, and that was my first introduction with Shala. But since then, I've gotten to know what a wonderful uh, person she is and just an incredible behavior analyst she is so joe i don't know if you want to put more words you know charlotte better than i do but you got to work add something before we go on to joe is i was actually stalking justin because i was so impressed with him that i was sure that i wanted him to be a young professor at unt but he had other plans and has done beautifully but i really just as a graduate student, I could see that he was going to be a trailblazer. No, yeah. thank, it was good. I'm glad you remember that time. <laughs> I, I do vividly. I remember the police coming next to me and saying, there's a woman following you around all the way. <laughs> <laughs> and making sure that she was okay. Um, 
<laughs> but with that, Joe, I, I, you work, you got the privilege and honor to work with Shala for a few years. So I don't know if you want to say something. Since yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's a great way to phrase it as, as a privilege and honor, because I think my first interactions with Shala was when I was at UNT, where Shala is still an associate professor in the Department of Behavior Analysis. Uh, but it was amazing to witness, like, firsthand working with Shala and seeing her kind, empathetic, and just a science-based approach to serving some of the most vulnerable populations, uh, including uh, those with an autism diagnosis. But I feel like her compassion and her interests expand far beyond autism intervention. And I think anybody who's familiar with a lot of her more recent work that's becoming more familiar uh, it gets to see that. Uh, I, she served as an SME for on topics like culture, diversity, early intervention, supervision, and ethics. I feel like we could talk about her brilliance the entire hour. Uh, <laughs> um, she's just wonderful, and I take every chance I have to interact and learn from her, and I hope everybody else does that as well. I just think we're so lucky to have her to talk about so many, like a wide range of topics. It's going to be tough to fit it all in an hour. So hopefully she'll come back uh, to us so we can talk about some more things that maybe we don't get to touch on today. Uh, anything? I'm, I'm going to add something about this too. I'm still mildly upset that you left, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> because I feel like some of our most, some of my most productive times in really developing um, protocols and approaches that were flexible and responsive and very loving um, happened during the period you were there. You were like an incredible partner in the process. And, and at least you went to somewhere really great. So <laughs> I'm, very, I'm very happy you left Joe. Just so I know. <laughs> so anyway. on this one, I'm, I'm better that you're here than uh, Shala being upset that you left. It's, it's for my advantage. I feel like my parents are fighting. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you both for your kind words. <laughs> so Shala, I, I mean, I know we're saying wonderful stuff about you, but maybe you can give a little history of who you are. Uh, there's some people that don't know who you are, probably on this, some people that obviously know who you are, but we just like to give a little background from your perspective of, you know, how you got in the field, where you, you know, your education, all that stuff. I'm, um, yeah, thank you. I, I actually was thinking about this, and I think for the topics that we chose today, I'd like to give sort of a little bit of a different background, um, because I think part of what was really important in my my formation and the, the paths that I've gone in, in behavior analysis in my life um, actually started with the year I was born. I was born in 1960, which was you know, it was the beginning of a period of great change in the United States, and my parents were both activists. So I actually remember like going to sit-ins and, and going to meetings about race unity and the environment, and then it was like the, the ecology movement. But um, so I think from a really early age, there was a, there was a strong uh, emphasis on human rights, on uh, being involved in society and being involved for change. And I think that's affected a lot of what I've done. And then I had an early mentor, Miss um, Juliet Whitaker, who actually was working with the Community Action Agency, um, which for those of you who know about Head Start, it was part of a Head Start program. And um, I started working there in high school. And I, I didn't know it at the time, but the model that they were using was the behavior analysis model that Don Bruchella had developed and was so impressed because she brought in a lot of, she was an artist, um, she'd been one of Re Richard Pryor's mentors. 
And so she brought in a lot of art, a lot of spirituality, but also really rigorous uh, instructional methods where the kids made a lot of progress and flourished. Um, and, and because of her love of education and early childhood, that was the direction I chose for undergraduate school. And then in undergraduate school, um, I think the first class I had in early childhood, we went over the UN uh, Convention on the Rights of Children. And so that was something that we actually studied and tried to understand what that meant and how that translated when you were working in child and family studies. Then I went and, and at the end of my time at SIU, I worked with several behavior analysts because there was a graduate program there. And two of my mentors, I was really fortunate, John and Sandra Lutzker were there. Um, and for those of you who don't know, John Lutzker uh, was the person who developed Project 12 Ways, which later became Project Safe Care. And I, I could be wrong, but I believe it is the program that has the most success in families not repeating offenses of abuse or neglect um, with their children. So it's a beautiful child welfare project that works with the whole family and that influenced my development a lot. And um, they have been Kansas graduates. Um, so I went to Kansas and there um, I worked with the mentors that uh, Justin and I share with Jan Sheldon, Jim Sherman, Barbara Ethelry, a mentor, and her background, for those of you who don't know, she published, I believe, the first study in airless stimulus control in JAB. Um, so my, my background in stimulus control started to be stronger at that time. I TA'd for several years and worked on several research, research projects in that area. I also worked with Todd Risley, um, when he was there on sabbatical, and Ogden Lindsley and Don Bouchelle. Um, I'm trying to think of who else. <laughs> I was at Kansas for a long time. So, so in addition to Jan and Jim and Barbara, I also worked with several other people and, um, and had some contact with Don Bear's lab. Uh, I, the only person I didn't get to work with um, was... Uh, was Mom Wolf, and I always feel really sorry about that because by that time he was not there all the time. So anyway, I was really fortunate. I, I think I was like this lump of coal and I just got lucky and ended up at SIU and then Kansas and all of that really shaped um, skills that I'm just really grateful to have and, and try to keep improving over time. Is that enough background? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe <that's> too much. <laughs> Before Joe gives uh, the first question, I just want to say rock chalk uh, <laughs> out there. And that should have been the opening and closing, I guess, but uh, I had other plans. And then that your era was always talked about as like the golden era when I was there. It was always your your colleagues, uh, uh, Diane and uh, Alan Harchek and, all, and you uh, were always, or always talked about every lab meeting. So we heard your guys' stories for... Uh, I've heard it for five years straight at KU. So you guys were definitely on there. It really was a beautiful time. And I guess in addition to faculty, the other graduate students, Diane Bannerman, in fact, I think an article that she and Jim and Jan wrote, um, balancing the right to habilitation with personal uh, liberties, I think is still a really important article. Um, but 
but Diane, Alan, Jesus, there were so many people, we were all there at the same time and we were all, like all we did was work. So we were all intensely engaged all the time. It was a really, it was a really rich, it was a really rich environment. It's like a who's who of <laughs> applied behavior analysts back then and even today. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like this leads right into, uh, I, I learned about the big four from a binder in your, in your office. And I think a lot of people don't know that background um, since it's just recently been published, but it had been around for a while. Uh, like 20 years. <laughs> the one thing John McCacken and I have in common <laughs> is, is we have a lot of stuff we're still sitting on. But um, so, yeah, actually that was... Um, I think one of my last comps, the, the beginning of it, I, I do have to say the kernel of it was my last comp, but I think all my co-authors um, developed it into something much more, um, that made a bigger contribution. It was, it was fuller, more expanded, and I think there was a depth that came with it when we all worked on it together. But um, I think what had happened, it was after the review that um, Dr. Iwata had done of sort of all the studies up to that point that had been done, it was maybe the early 90s, that had been done in, in the functional analysis work um, by, by he and his colleagues. Um, I read that and because I was in early childhood and because, which I didn't mention, my father was in public health. So I spent my whole childhood hearing about public health, um, which public health has always had as the part of the reason it exists is a social justice mission and it's a preventative mission. So the idea was that they've learned all these things in medicine and, um, and so, because as we learn those things, there are things we can do on a societal level to help those things not happen, basically. So for example, if we know about diabetes and, and the treatments for it, that's really good and important. At the same time, if we know what is likely to either cause diabetes or to make it more difficult for the person who has it, then we can have systemic campaigns to try to change behavior at a societal level. So I heard about that my whole childhood um, and I saw the review and it hit me, you know, if we know this much about when people either produce suffering for themselves or for the people they love around them or, or have trouble managing in society, if we know about those conditions, then maybe we should systemically try to build structures and ways of approaching things that, that head all that off before it gets there. And that in thinking about that, it, it sort of made me jump to another place, um, which I was really fortunate, and a lot of this was from Jesus because he had studied uh, Gold Diamond's work extensively, which is a constructional approach. Um, and, and so those things came together too and started thinking about, you know what, shift away 
from it being about the person's problems and move towards how you can imagine a person's life to be more joyful, be fuller, have more opportunities, more choices. So I think at that point it all came together and um, that was my last, I think it was one of my last comp questions that I posed and wrote a response to. I don't know, does that answer your question? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I love it. Well, and I think just people see that paper come out, you know, I, it was in 2019. And I think, uh, you know, it's still relevant and it's very important right now. But I just think you, you had it, the kernels of that 20 years ago. And I think a lot of people don't have access to that or, or know that. And I, it always makes me think, well, what happened? What would have happened if that paper would have came out back then? And where would the field be right now? Uh, because I think it's a very impactful paper, but I'm clearly biased. <laughs> well, you know, I think a couple of things. I, I'm not sure, well, I'm not sure that many people notice the paper now, to be honest. <laughs> I think some people do. But I think that, um, I think that changing systems is really hard. And I think we're seeing that across our whole country um, at, at many, many different levels. So systemic change is hard. I think also that um, there are a lot of contingencies that, which have been talked about since the 60s and 70s in behavior analysis that, you know, a lot of what we do as behavior analysts is that people are under conditions of aversive stimulation and we go in and we help those stop, which is good. Like that's really good. But it also, um, it also puts us in a position where um, it's kind of like a behavioral trap, like what Don Baer and Montwolf talked about. It puts us in a situation where the reinforcers sort of trap that repertoire and it makes it harder for us to go out and do, do sort of imagining and building before there's a problem. Um, and that, that is harder, but I think that's harder for us as humans. I think that's probably evolutionarily um, one of the next stages in our development as a species is to, is to learn how to arrange the environment so that um, we're preventative and we're constructive um, about how we all can live good and meaningful lives. Um, and actually, I read Walden II in high school, and I think that that was one of my early hooks, that, that there's this whole thing about science and, and the well-being of humans that could go together, that, that we could learn how to design societies that, um, that worked for all of us in just ways, but I don't think we know very much about how to do that yet. So I think we're learning. Um, anyway. <laughs> no, no, I, I think uh, I, I tend to get awestruck while you talk just because there's so much valuable information uh, that's coming out. So uh, I, I'm just going to continue to let you talk as much as, as, as you want. Um, but I think I think no, I think it's a great point, and I think it shows um, what the big four was, you know, about problem behavior, um, but it was more than about problem behavior, and the philosophy behind some of the things that are in that paper extend way beyond 
um, some of the things that are discussed in that paper with, with respect to problem behavior and functional analysis. And I think uh, that summarizes it very nicely. Uh, and I think it's, it it's goes off of some of the earlier writings in behavior analysis where we, we end up taking these people that have problems, trying to solve their problem and then putting them back in a broken system. Uh, and I think uh, that's what we need to, we need to break that system uh, and we need to get better at fixing the systems as opposed to trying to fix the person. And I think uh, hopefully some of the, the more recent events that are going on that are, I mean, have been going on for a while, but lights getting shown on them much more uh, now, maybe that will be the catalyst for behavior analysts to evolve, like you were saying. All of us as humans, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think different disciplines have been focusing on different pieces that will help that evolution. Like public health is, is about prevention and systems and understanding the data of what's happening with populations of people. Sociology looks at the patterns. Anthropology looks at the meaning and, and how you get information from people. Like there's so many incredible disciplines looking at things and we're I think now more we're starting to interface more because of the urgency of the the problems that humanity faces so I think and I think behavior analysts um, come with some incredible conceptualizations and tools to the table but I also think we have an awful lot to learn um, like how to participate with others in the process how to how to take what we have learned and to translate and work with other with other groups um, to to learn how to create better societies. I, I actually think, you know, I think what's going on and why when we were talking about this, I think what's going on with the abolition movement is actually a, a very important and interesting thing because it, it makes me think a lot about what happened when we started to realize that, um, that we should think carefully about the use of punishment and aversives with people with disabilities. And, and just that that entering our conversation and that entering our values shifted the field really in the 80s. Um, Barbara was part of the commission in Washington that was looking at um, really saying that there are very few conditions where it's appropriate. And, but, but by preventing that and saying it wasn't appropriate, what happened was we started so many ways to help people have better lives and to change. And I think at a larger scale, I see a little bit of the abolition movement doing that, that instead of being punishment-based and incarceration-based, that we can start looking at, well, what leads to the mental health issues? What leads to the addictions? What leads to people not having homes? Like all of those societal conditions, you know, maybe we should start looking at that and, and working on repairing that, which, I have to also give a lot of, I have learned so much. We, we had a social justice lab and the, the students in that lab, you know, were incredible in terms of, of pressing issues, bringing in outside information and being real um, warriors for trying to change things. And 
these, sorry. <laughs> I think that, um, I think that some of it has been hard for me to process. Like for example, at first I thought, oh, we can't have not, can't have not please. But you know what? I felt like that when we first started talking about the averses in the eighties. I thought, oh, we can't, you know, what about the people who are gouging their eyes out? You know, but as I started to learn more, I started thinking, you know what, maybe we can in the same way that we have developed other alternatives and ways of even framing the whole thing. Like, why is the person gouging their eye out in the first place? You know, what, what is happening there? Is there something internally going on? Is there something externally with the environment that we can change? And I think some of all of that we can consider and look at the parallels in, in what we're trying to do in the larger society especially when it appears that some groups are more vulnerable and at risk, um, especially black people in this country, that for, for unjust and inappropriate conditions um, that lead to, to policing and incarceration. So, Shali, I mean, what you're talking about are like massive fundamental changes to the way we approach things, or at least that's my perspective, and I'm all for it. Um, I'm wondering, you know, there's a lot of young uh, BCBAs here, and I mean young in terms of uh, the years that they're in the field, uh, not being as many as, as others. Um, and so I'm just wondering if you can give what your thoughts are, how we can go about making this change like a reality for the better good of society. I, I'm just, Wondering if you have any thoughts of ways we can help improve society through behavior analysis, making these fundamental changes. And before you answer the question, just remember anyone who has questions with what Shaw is saying, please put it in the question box uh, so that you know your questions get answered. I, I don't actually have an answer, Justin. <laughs> um, I have some directional things. Um, I think as individuals, I think it's important that we're as aware as possible about what's happening in our own communities. Um, and obviously, you know, I also work in autism, so I have tried over the course of my career to understand what is happening with families who have children with autism across the board, whether they're refugees from Syria or their children who've been living in poverty or they're Latinos or whether they're black. Like I've, I've tried to understand what the whole picture is and have tried over time to develop programs for children and families that are under-resourced. So I think part of it is even in your own circles, trying to understand what's happening around you. So in autism, I've tried to do that. I've also tried to do it in my own neighborhood, the neighborhoods that are adjacent to me, um, in my children's lives, in my grandchild's life, to try to understand what's happening in society and also to educate myself. Um, 
I'm, I'm, al I'm also a Baha'i, and that has been important um, because that is a movement that has a great emphasis on, on world unity and racial unity and justice. So I participate in readings groups, you know, like even with everything that happened after the shelter in place, I noticed there's a lot more reading groups, people are more engaged, and I think those things are important is understanding what's going on there. And then I think the other thing is, is thinking through what we have learned. For example, like looking at the history of how we've approached the use of aversives or how we have approached um, function, how we've approached building repertoires. That, um, and Project 12 Ways is a really good example of that because we're safe care, that looking at, well, what does a family need to be to be successful, to not be so um, at risk that they harm their children. So I, I think that's part of it. And also to be a behavior analyst who is at the table where those kinds of decisions are being made. You know, I, I don't know if that's really a very good answer because I, I don't think there's one answer to fix all of this. I think we all have to widen more and more our awareness and our action. I, I think we just have to do things, which is scary because especially right now, you're gonna end up doing a lot of wrong things. I know I, I use the wrong words sometimes. I probably hurt people sometimes. Um, I hope I catch it as much as possible and I try to reset and jump back in. And actually sometimes because social justice work is hard, sometimes I retreat for a while because it, it is exhausting on many levels and and there's a lot of there's a lot of trauma, and so your own and other people's. So it's 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 definitely something where I think we each find ways that we can exert change. Um, you know, like I think one of the things that I've really liked in working with you all is this emphasis on responsiveness and flexibility that because one of the things we were seeing in the field for people with disabilities is is doing things that didn't adjust to the person in front of us um, which is which is not very loving <laughs> like the, the most loving thing you can do is is actually see the person in front of you and actually in the moment adjust to what they need so they can make progress and do better. And I think for the disabilities community, this is a really important thing. And, and the same thing I think is true, that responsiveness for all of us with each other as a society. But, but it also, and I, um, I see Malika's on here so she can chime in. But Malika, uh, for her dissertation, did an analysis. I think she talked about it on one of your podcasts. But um, an analysis of, of where we are in the field in terms of social justice. And one of the things that we have been talking about a lot is that no matter what it is, outside society or in our own discipline, there has to be some values um, that guide it all. And those values... I think we do better when our values are noble, when they're not about making a lot of money, when they're about seeing children grow up and have opportunities in life that they wouldn't otherwise if they hadn't learned to talk, if they hadn't learned to imitate, if they hadn't learned to look at people and get information from their faces. You know, so, so I think though that, that value-driven way of approaching life 
fits really well with a constructional approach too, because then what you're doing is you're, you're thinking directionally, you're thinking about what it is that you want to accomplish and then organizing your behavior, your systems and everything around that and your evaluation of whether you're getting there or not there. I think um, that's a, a great answer to, to go to, to your question of if that's an okay answer. I think it's a great answer because I think there's no simple fix and I think that illustrates it really nicely. And I think people right now with everything going on uh, are feeling compelled to jump into action before they have that awareness. Uh, and rather than taking some time to become aware and to become knowledgeable to inform the action. Uh, so I, I wanted to say that. And then the, the part, I love the part about values. My concern is uh, the people who, in who are in charge of making those values to go to the, one of the other topics of this talk are co commonly look like me. Uh, and I, I think that needs to be addressed as well to ensure that the values are um, diverse and, and responsive enough to a wide variety of cultures and, and backgrounds. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot there, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Okay, so there are, there are two things that I definitely want to say about that. I think one, this notion of a community of practice is absolutely critical. Like, I don't think any of this is work that any of us can do alone at all. So I think you need a group that's committed to learning about how to make it better. And it can be maybe a bunch of groups. It might be groups around children with autism. It may be groups around adults with disabilities. It may be groups around issues related to race. It may be groups around the eradication of, of extreme wealth and poverty. You know, so you can have groups around all of those things where you do inform yourselves, you teach each other, and you do take action because I think one of the things we've learned in behavior analysis is you have to do stuff to learn, like you have to respond. So, so that gets tricky though, because you don't want to go in and respond and hurt people. So there's, there's always this balance, but if you have a community, people can be helping each other and say, Hey, pull back or, you know what? Don't go asking people that. <laughs> like, like you're just laying more stuff on them. So, so I think having a community of practice is really important. And also, Ogden used to always talk about curricular courage. Like that's something we should teach the kids that you can't have everything be perfect for them. They've got to develop some toughness in trying and initiating. And I think for us, it's the same way in creating a new world is that that we also have to develop toughness. And I'm telling you, it's hard. My heart has been broken because I like to be a good person. And I have done things that have probably hurt people. And when I realize it, I think, oh, I was a bad person. I'm not doing that anymore. But that's not, that's not having courage in this situation. I have to say, wow, you know, I didn't understand that. I'm going to think about it and figure out how to change and jump back in. But that's not easy. You know, you look at, you look at all the greats in the world and John Lewis and uh, who, who was it that he was running against? Andrew Young, I think, had beef. <laughs> like everybody does. There, there's things will happen, but you can't also let that hold you back. I, I do think, though, for example, 
you are a white male. Um, and I think that you're a white male with a PhD. So, so you have, there's this thing called the curiarchy. Um, and instead of just a linear patriarchy progression, um, there's a bunch of things that give you privilege. Having a credential is one of them. Being white is one of them. You know, there's a whole series of being Christian is another one. Um, so there's a whole series of things. So I think seeing where you are in the hierarchy and, and seeing how the people or person in front of you, kind of where they are and being aware of what the power imbalances are and, and being respectful and, and trying to, which is hard, but trying to, um, trying to acknowledge that and work with it and, and understand um, what is the thing that will help the most. Um, you know, like I see even we're friends on Facebook, like you, you post a lot of things that I think are helpful, you know, so, so you can use your privilege to have a voice and, and you listen really well, you know, so, so I think there are lots of things we can learn when we are privileged about how to, how to use that privilege, but also when it's time to step back and and let other people do the talking um that's a hard one i think everybody's grappling you know even one of the the kind of popular books i can't it was called white privilege is that what it was called by d'angelo you know everybody um was was really into that and now it's kind of flipped um that well she's made a lot of money writing about white privilege so <laughs> she used a privilege to talk about privilege to become more privileged i mean i i'm not criticizing her either because i think there's some really good things in the book but it's hard it's sticky and it's complicated and i think we we have to keep working through it but i think we also have to be careful not to beat up the people who are trying to work through it um I don't think we should beat anybody up, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think I think that sometimes, you know, say you're here in the hierarchy and someone's here and there's a whole bunch of people here. Sometimes it goes slamming into this person, and I think that I think that that's kind of dangerous. I, I don't I don't think punishment and coercion get any of us anywhere. Which is another thing I love about the abolitionists and listening to them is that that that's not what they want to do. They don't want to throw the police in jail or punish them. They they want it to be good for everybody, which I think is a really good goal. Uh, and it's, do you mind say spelling that out the the hierarchy that you were talking about, just so I can put it in the chat for everyone. Um. Actually, you know what I can do is um, it's it's actually since Malika's on, <laughs> maybe she can put a link to one of the articles about it in there. I, I did. There's, there's a bunch of other articles I'm going to put in the chat um, that kind of touch on some of the stuff I've been talking about, um, but and actually we have another article um, and maybe. If, if we can put that in the chat or I can find it. Oh, sorry, Malika. No, the, actually, if you put the Miller, Recruz, and Alai one in, because we talk about it's the curiarchy. So that's a way of talking about it instead of, um, yeah, Miller 2019. Um, so that's a way of talking about it instead of a patriarchy, because the patriarchy sort of frames it all on men and everything men have done, which, it's a little bit of a problem, but that's not the main thing. It's is that, you know, depending on 
who you're with. Thank you. There it is. Um, so we talk about it in that, in that article which is a great journal, by the way, it's um, Behavior and Social Issues, that um, that journal, it's an ABAI journal, and they really address a lot of things related to what we're talking about today. Well, and I feel like the readership for that journal is increasing, and I think that's a, a sign of, of good change that's happening within our field. So, and I wonder if we can have more metrics like that that can make sure that we are moving toward those important values that should be driving our field, um, and if not, reevaluate what we need to be doing if we're not heading in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think Malika's dissertation, which is being published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, is a good first step in that direction where, where we did an analysis across 50 years of Java. She looked at what the trends are in terms of human rights. So I, I think also there have been some really brave editors who, um, who have felt comfortable stretching the boundaries of what we do as behavior analysts, how we talk, which is hard because for those of you who've been in our community, we're, we're very, um, we bite ankles when people speak the wrong way or they speak about things that are outside of the bounds, which is okay because we do need a technical vocabulary, but there are some things that, um, that I think they're uncharted territories. And so we have to be a little bit more comfortable with some stretchiness of the boundaries of what we're looking at. And I think there have been some editors recently who are a little bit more comfortable with that. I think Jonathan Tarbox is one of them. You know, there's, there's comfort with trying out some new things and giving voice to different people who may speak of things very differently, you know, across cultures within scientific communities, you know, that, that's a culture in itself. There are particular ways of talking that are not always, and, and science has been developed primarily in a global north, um, Western dominated context. And we think it doesn't have a particular way of being because that's the dominant culture, but it has a really particular way of being that is very discordant with a lot of the rest of the world. Um, and I'm not saying not have scientific method, but the way we talk in science, the way we progress, I think there's room for other people to come and have a seat at the table um, and, and change a little bit of, of how we how brave we are in terms of tackling new things and making mistakes. Like we also have kind of a, I think, a low tolerance for, um, for things that don't have very tight internal validity. And um, even if, and I think you talked about this on a previous podcast, even if they have crap external validity or social validity, as long as they have this internal validity, it's really, really important. But and, and it's not, I'm not saying don't have internal validity. That's really important in science, replication, control, prediction. But when you're in a new area, 
it's, it's, I know you've probably all heard this before, but it's sort of the equivalent of just looking for the keys in the dark where the light is and not looking everywhere else, which is fine if that's where the keys are, but most of the time they're not. And so you need to develop new techniques for looking everywhere else. And that's going to be clumsy and awkward and not perfectly lit for a while. And we, we have to be comfortable with that. Um, in fact, um, that is something um, Malika and I and uh, Alicia Recruz, who's an anthropologist, applied anthropologist that um, I have worked with for many years, we're, we're sort of initiating a new lab. And the point of it is to learn how to genuinely do participatory research and, and to continue exploring some of those methods. Um, anyway, I think I went off track. No, no, not at all. I, that's what that's the beauty of these things is there's no off track. It's we go where the conversation takes us. Uh, and I, I think these are very important things that a lot of people are going to find useful. And uh, to go off of what you're saying, I think the problem gets even more uh, confounded when our field isn't always the best at taking criticisms of ourselves. Uh, and I'm very happy to hear that Malaika's uh, dissertation, or at least part of it, got published in, in BAP, because I know when we did our review of social validity measures, I know Julie is on here as well, she's the first author on that one, some journals weren't happy about some of the findings and didn't want to publish it. So very happy that it's found its home in Ejoba. Uh, but uh, maybe, again, that's another met, uh, a sign that people are, are starting to become more aware and more willing to look at some of the problems that our field needs to solve. But Joe, I do think that's a problem. Like the whole reason for applied behavior analysis is social importance, period. There's no other reason for doing it. So I think that that should be a large part of our efforts to develop ways to assess it, understand it, and include it. There should be ongoing, there should be ongoing, um, it should be included in our research rigorously, and then there should be ongoing meta-analyses of how we're doing it and how well we're doing it. Like I think some of the work that you all have published and that we have been doing looking at like measures of affect, like those are important, um, those are important things to, to help us understand, like how is this making the people we work with feel? Like that, that's really important. Most of, and I love the way Mont Wolf is in a very old paper, but the, the Java 1978 paper, where he's talking about social importance and behavior analysis finding its heart. That, you know, the most important things to humans are things like love and joy um, and, tenderness, like how we feel for our children. Like all of those things are the things we all want. You know, they're the art, literature, music, it's all about that or loss of that. You know, so, so to not think that that's part of a science of applied behavior analysis, I think is, is not so good. <laughs> and, but part of it's because it's it's really hard like you know just because someone's smiling doesn't mean they're happy so it, it gets really complicated but if we don't start doing it how, how are we ever gonna learn? you know yeah mm -hmm. 
Well, and uh, I learned a lot about the importance of affect and, and looking at the effects of our interventions from you and, and my work at East Shields North Texas while I was at, at UNT. And I carried it over uh, when I came here to work with Justin. Uh, and I think something that got brought up in the last one that, that really resonated with me is not only do we need to look at um, how the people that are receiving our intervention view it, but also um, the effects of that intervention on the people that they interact with as well. Uh, and so it almost added on to, for me, another level of social validity uh, that I keep thinking about. Like, so um, we do a lot of work with social skills interventions and um, we've been pretty successful and the, the kids seem to love it uh, and the parents seem to love it, but we've never taken it to, all right, so what do their peers then think about their interactions with them while they're using those skills as well? Uh, and that really resonated with me for some reason. You know what I love too about coming into your center? And this is something that Angaliki Gina, who is just the most phenomenal behavior analyst in Greece, she's at the University of Athens that I've learned from her, is that it's also important the affect of the therapist and, and how the therapist is feeling, how the parent's feeling. And when I walk into your center, I mean, I've only been to the Seal Beach one, like I feel happiness. Like I feel the kids happy, I feel the staff super happy, I feel the supervisors happy, like, and there's high rates of engagement in doing things, which is another thing I learned from Jim Sherman and Jan Sheldon. They were running a study at the time I was at KU, which I will never forget. They were looking at rapport and they asked people, you know, what's rapport like between, you know, Shallon, this client, Shallon, this client, the different adults that we were working with. And they got the information and then they took direct measures. And it turns out that um, good rapport isn't just letting people do whatever they want. It's actually having requirements and, you know, giving instructions, having people be successful and to learn stuff. You know, I think, again, that was one study and, and, and there needs to be so many more like that because, but I think you need measures of how happy people are, what they say, how they look, and you need to understand, you know, what are the conditions that produce all of that? And it turns out, and I, I feel like this anecdotally looking at over time, like even in our own center when Easter Seals was running, you know, the kids and the staff looked the happiest when we were hopping, when, when everybody was making progress, we knew how to teach, there was the conditions that allowed the, the staff to be good teachers and interventionists, you know, like all of that is really important. It's important for everybody to be happy. You know, the kids, their families, their peers, but also the therapists who are working with the children. As I, I think also too, a lot of times the conditions for interventionists are not very good. And I think they're getting increasingly harder. You know, if you don't have enough training, it's really hard to go in and be successful. And I think, you know, not only just hours of training, but 
training that actually makes you a responsive and effective interventionist. Like, I think that's important. I also, I'm going to say one more thing and then I'll stop. But I, I also think the values thing is important. You know, one of the most beautiful things I think at Easter Seals that we did is we didn't really say a prayer at the beginning of each important meeting, but, but we did talk about our mission and the values of our mission and about being effective, about dignity, about, about kindness, about being culturally responsive to the families we were working with. Like we reminded ourselves before any important work as a group, why we were there and then, and then made decisions in that context. And I think that is part of when we were really good there, we were really good because of that and because of a commitment. Um, I know Sarah's on here too, and she was the first thesis where we looked at how do you produce really effective, responsive therapists. And that study is published. I don't know if somebody can post that, but that's published in Research in Autism. I can't remember which one it is. I'll post that. Yeah, I can post it. But anyway, but, but I think, so we had this commitment to science, we had this commitment to love, and we had this commitment to have a community of practice who kept putting it together. And I think that was really important. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I mean, I guess the question, I had Sarah, Sarah brought the question in the chat. I wonder what our values as a field are today as a whole. And if we're having really varying values today, and I, I do see this, I, and I don't mean values like uh, which approach or which prompt style to use or anything like that. I mean larger values. Um, and I see it on social media coming up more and more frequently that it seems that we're having varying values on, on how much we value science, how much we value data, how much we value the, contrib the, contributor the contributions of our former, our, our grandparents or parents of the field, how much we value what we teach and what we should be teaching. And I'm wondering, I mean, I think from my perspective, Bear, Wolf, Risley kind of helped set those values, right? In, in the 60s and, and talk about what we all care about. And I, I know we are a smaller field then. I don't know if we all share similar values at this point or if there's many varying values and we almost need to come together into the field and determine what do we really care about? I don't know how you feel about that, Shala or Joe, but I see a lot of varying values out there today, some of which I don't agree, uh, which they aren't my values at all that I see posted on social media, posted uh, on different talks that people give. They're just not the things I'm concerned about or think what we should be striving for as behavior analysts. You know, I, I think we're, I agree, we're all over the place as a field, <laughs> like, like in really different places, but I think we're just like what's happening in the world right now. The world is all over the place. It's like everything's blowing up. Um, but I love, there's a Arundhati Roy, she's a, an Indian author. Um, she talks about how how pandemics have been portals. Um, and I think this was starting to happen in Brew before the pandemic, but, but I think what happens in behavior, like with a kid, when you start getting all this variability and it's going all over the place, well, for shaping, 
that's a good opportunity for selection. You know, variation and selection, that's, that's a really important set of things we've learned about behavior. And I think that, um, I think that, yes, we're all over the place, but that also leaves more openings for having the discussions about where we are and to say exactly what you said. Like, wh why are we here? What are we doing? What are the checks and balances for some of the kind of icky contingencies that are happening? And, and how do we allow ourselves to sway, but not sway too far from science, but understand this science has occurred in a particular cultural context. You know, there's, there's a whole lot going on. And I think the only way we can move through it is to actually be talking about it like this and having a lot of discussions where we acknowledge this is a value that is about just doing what's popular, not where there's any evidence for it. Or this is a value about doing what makes you a lot of I'm trying to not use bad words um, in general, not just here. I'm, I'm trying to reduce that, but that gets you a lot of money. Like, like, did you see what I'm saying? That I, I think that, but we have to have discussions about it and we have to kind of acknowledge, you know, what, um, what, we have to acknowledge what's going on in larger society and then where we want to be and what we are. And, and also that there are different activities. Steve Fawcett wrote a beautiful article many years ago. Um, it was when we were going through a similar period for, for different reasons. Um, it was in the behavior analyst. And he was talking about, you know what? There are pioneers, there are shepherds. Like there, there's all kinds of roles that we can have. Um, there are people who are trailblazers, you know, who are breaking everything and pissing everybody off, you know, and there are people who keep everything clean at home. <laughs> like, like there's, there are different roles, but I think work like his, or I think that, um, I think somebody had just said in perspectives, there was an article about the diversification, diversification of behaviorism. So I think those kind of discussions are really important so that, so that we're in a process of reflecting on what we are and where we're going and how that fits with the rest of the world too. Yeah, Shal, I, I, I mean, everything you've said today is beautiful uh, and well, well crafted and well, well articulated, much more than I can ever uh, dream of accomplishing uh, and how I present what I'm gonna say. But I, I agree, it's all about having those discussions. I think we need to have those discussions somewhere and we need some outlet where we have leaders of the field and up-and-coming leaders and practitioners and consumers all sitting around and talking about it but but with that i think we also have to remember that you can listen to another perspective and not agree with that perspective and just because you disagree with that perspective you are still listening to them so someone could say what their perspective is on the state of our science and i might not agree with them. I'm listening to them. I understand their arguments, but I've come to a different path. And I think we have to be actually. Yeah, I, I want to say this. I think, first of all, I'm, I'm just super grateful to my Kansas training because we learned to, to, to really deeply and heatedly debate things and not take it personal. That, that it, was, it was an exercise in trying to figure things out and you could disagree with each other and you could still be friends. I mean, and, and I think 
in society in general, that has become a little bit lost. And I think to suppress discussion is about as colonial as you can get. And I think this is a very bad direction. Like I really like the article you guys just published. <laughs> I like the title of it, uh, but <laughs> the, I'm sorry. <laughs> I like it because, because we have to have discourse. If we don't have discourse, we're screwed. Like, we need to be talking about what's working, not working, and have it be a safe environment. Because if there are people who are controlling things and suppressing discussion, then we're really in trouble. Like, we're really in trouble. So I think, first of all, thank you for being brave in your areas that you guys have tackled and continuing to try to have the discussions, even though I know you get punished. Like, like, I know that that can be very difficult, but I think, and you know what, you could be right or wrong, that's not the point, but we need to be able to have discourse about things. Otherwise, it becomes the epitome of colonialism, that there's someone in power who calls the shots and silences everybody else, and I think this is wrong. Like... And, and I, I want to say uh, two things, and now we have to unfortunately wrap it up because we're at our time. Um, it's having the discourse, but having professional discourse. You yeah. can disagree with someone, but that doesn't mean you should go and then make personal attacks on that person. You can disagree professionally, as I do, as Shala knows and Joe knows, and most of the audience know. I disagree with many professionals in our field. But it's a professional disagreement. It's not a personal attack. It's not that I think that person is bad or coming from the wrong direction. It's a, it's a professional disagreement. And I, I love your thing of like, yeah, that's how we're taught. And I'm sure, Shala, the last thing before I close it out is you'll remember the stories. I think you remember the stories. Jim used to talk about, Jim Sherman used to talk about how he would share an office with Todd Risley back in Washington. And he would at least tell me, I don't know if he said the same story as you, that they would get in arguments all day long about the, the, uh, the, the founding of the field and the principles of our field. And they would be heated arguments, yelling at each other, and, and, and done in a professional manner, but really heated. And then it would end and they would go get a beer together. And they would still have these cordial discussions. I hope that we go to a place where we can continue to have discourse and make the changes because I think the, the global changes that you're talking about today, which are needed, and I understand they're needed across the country, across the world on many things that you know I can't uh, affect or affect as heavily as hopefully behavior analysis, but we need to have those discussions, have that discourse and be civil about it. I, I do wanna say, Justin, I completely agree with you. The only thing I would add is sometimes they were mad at each other. <laughs> you know, because it is hard. It's, it's hard to feel something with conviction and not take it personally, but they reset eventually. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, I think that's also important to know that sometimes you're so passionate and feel so strongly that you are pissed at each other. But that's why the community of practice is important. It's like, you know, get over it, Shalik. Go back in. <laughs> so I guess, I guess the years from you to me, he rechanged his uh, story a little bit. Of no, they, they totally did. But I think, like, for example, people used to call often crazy Og. Well, first of all, that's not nice for people who have mental illness. But also, you know, he was so different than everybody. And, he, and they argued so much. But 
But so sometimes there were separations and sometimes they did result in power struggles. But I think we can learn to do that better. And I think I, I think I agree with you. We've, we've got to do it. Yeah. Anyway, I know we're running over, but thank you guys. This, so this has been good. wonderful. Um, it's always great having you. Always great spending time with you. Uh, obviously, we've been cut on spending time together because of COVID. So uh, we will be having it in two weeks, Joe. Right? Is that right? Yeah, uh, the 26th. Our last rant of uh, episode or season one, I guess it is. And then Joe and I are going to take a little, uh, probably a month off. And I, my guess is begin sometime in October. September is a crazy time for everybody. And uh, we will have another 10 episodes in October, probably through the winter is my guess. But so the next one is in two weeks. And that's on what, Joe? Uh, we're going to be talking to Wes and some of his colleagues about the work that they're doing with behavior analysis and sports. So little different than what we usually talk about, but it will be very interesting and it'll fill your sports needs when uh, college football looks like they're canceling. Baseball's on its way. Baseball's on its way. So that'll be good. So I will end that. Remember the opening CEU was social. The closing one is distance. (laughs) Please social distance. I drove from California to Montana this last week, and I didn't see many people social distancing. And I would like to go back to seeing my friend Shala live and get on a plane versus only having virtual <laughs> virtual meetings. So please, social distance. Um, with that, I want to thank everybody for attending Rants with Justin and Joe. Yeah. And thank you, Shala. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. No, thank you, guys. It was great. <laughs> Take care. All right. All see right. you later. Bye-bye.